Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Wonderful, Conrad. Can't wait to get into this show. It uh, means a lot to me personally. Uh, it means more to me personally than it did professionally, I guess. It depends on one's perspective, but uh, this uh, Clash of Champions was my last venture uh, on a big broadcast for WCW, and a lot of changes were in, uh, afloat, but I'm looking forward to this show. I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, our AEW business is good and nice, easy travel. It's nice, warm places. Uh, we're seeing some of these young kids evolve better, get used to this. And what fans got to understand, Conrad, and you and I have talked about this. Uh, a lot of these ki- kids have never made any money. So this whole money thing's a different deal for them. And they have never done nationally televised TV matches. Right. And there is a different presentation in how you structure your match and how you approach your match on a television environment or in a television environment, as opposed to doing a quote unquote house show slash live event. So a lot of these guys are just starting to get the feel. And I'm uh, excited about that because they're young and they're hungry. And when you get young athletic kids that are so in love with wrestling, their mistress hasn't shit on them yet. Uh, like it has done, <clears throat> done others in the past, uh, that it's just amazing to me, uh, how they are grasping and taking ownership of their own stuff. And they're always asking questions. So I love to talk with them, but man, it's been a really a neat thing. Some people say, well, why do you like that AEW so much? Well, hey, I like working for my boss, Tony Khan, uh, quite really, I mean, I'm not just sucking ass, but I, I, he's a good guy and we have a lot of fun talking wrestling, but <clears throat> because he remember stuff that there's no way in the hell I could remember. It's amazing. He has a photographic memory and he's a big time fan. I, he was quoting Memphis wrestling angles to the Memphis wrestling talents that were with us a few weeks ago in, in, uh, in Memphis for the, uh, legends night. So he's a, he's a complete connoisseur. And I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. You talked to him many times. He knows his stuff. No, he really does. And it's funny because everyone who, who I know, who's been in the business a long time, the first thing they tell me after they meet him is how much he's almost rain man esque with his recall on some of these old school angles, even stuff that predates him, you know, before he was born and he remembers that stuff. So, uh, and another friend of ours who recently met him said that, uh, he's probably too nice for wrestling. He's like, he's like the nicest <laughs> guy in wrestling wrestling. So yeah, lots of good stuff to be said about AEW. hope you check out Jim every single Wednesday on dynamite. It's on TNT, but of course our show is all about the old school. And man, are we going old school for you today? Clash of the champions. 22 is our topic from January 13th, 1993, uh, from the Mecca in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And let's get into it, man. This clash of the champions here. We're coming right off Starcade 92. A few days after that, believe it or not, Vader would defeat Ron Simmons to regain the world title. Of course, Vader had previously lost the title to Ron Simmons. We're also on the heels of the big, uh, Tokyo dome show. Uh, the great Muda would lose the NWA title to Masahiro Chono there, of course, on January 4th. But the real thing that people are talking about in wrestling is a rather interesting angle. Meltzer would report an angle was shot on December 27th in Charlotte, where Arn Anderson and Eric Watts got into a street fright in front of a seven 11. They even had the Charlotte police participate and arrested quote unquote, Eric, 
I didn't get full details, although it should appear on television within the next week. And I believe the storyline will go something like Anderson was badly injured in the fight. Watts was arrested, but a Rodney King like videotape from a passerby will exonerate Eric at one point. And I don't know if this will still happen. Bill was going to fire Eric on television for being arrested before Eric could get exonerated. And Anderson will reportedly receive a $1,500 per week fee to sit at home and sell the Watts injury. And then we'll come in with a new contract at allegedly $750 a shot. Um, this is fascinating to me because Eric Watts, for better or worse has always been a hot topic. Uh, a lot of people say that, oh, he wasn't very good and he didn't deserve his push and he didn't earn his spot or all the things that you hate to hear, mm-hmm. but, but there they are. And then there's this weird angle or one of the all-time greats, Arn Anderson and him are hooking up in a parking lot. It's a little weird. Yeah. I didn't like the angle at all. Uh, I felt bad for Arn because Arn's skill set and Eric's skill set were far apart. Uh, Eric had not had the training, the time, the ring time. And he had a very, uh, challenging last name considering that the cowboy was the head coach. And now all of a sudden his boy is in the, is in the, he's not in the starting lineup yet, but he sure as hell headed that way. And I thought the last name there was a little, was a little daunting for Eric to overcome. Eric was a great athlete. He, you know, I, I met Howard Schnellenberger on a flight, coach Howard Schnellenberger on a flight going somewhere. And, and the flight was so damn empty and we're both in coach and nobody was hardly anybody was there. So I moved over near him and introduced myself and, you know, told him I admired his coaching and he won a national championship in Miami. Uh, and you know, so I, I'm a football guy. So we shot the shit and I said, Hey, look, my boss has a son that's six, five or six, six. He's a quarterback. And his eyes got big. I said, he's got a good arm. His dad was a two sports star in college. He's got a little DNA in him. I don't know if he's your kind of guy or not, but he's, uh, he's uh, out there and he's being recruited. So anyway, I gave him the name and the number and all that good stuff. And then ironically, long story short, he started recruiting Eric and gave Eric a full ride as a quarterback at, at uh, Louisville. Really? Yeah. And, uh, so, and he told Bill this, he said, I just thought when I met your guy referring to me that it was just fate, this was meant to happen. He on the same flight as I blah, blah, blah. So, right. uh, and, uh, so Eric went there and he got to play a little, you know, he didn't, I don't think he was, it blew him away, but he started at, at points. I believe he had a couple of good games at, on, on national TV. So, uh, Eric was a good athlete. So anybody that says, well, he had two left feet. No, you're wrong. He didn't have two left feet. Uh, he, he was a good athlete, but he, he was, he had the wrong name at the wrong place at the wrong time. It just was never going to get out. I just tell Bill that, you know, all we get anybody over, blah, blah, blah. well, he's not ready to get over. He needs, he needs time. So that was a bad, he, Eric was destined for uh, a rocky road from day one. Let's talk about the, uh, the move, the move that's going to quote unquote injure Arn is the STF. And I, I may have this wrong, but I think a long time ago, I had a conversation with Arn and I think he took credit for, he wanted to sort of help get this move over as a devastating finishing maneuver 
you know, a hell of a submission move. And he thought showing sort of a real life application to it would add some realism to it and maybe get fans behind it where maybe the previously they haven't. So mm-hmm. Eric Watts is going to put Arn Anderson in an STF in a parking lot of a gas station here. How, um, what do you remember about that? How, were there any particular other strategies to try to get Eric over and, and was the STF just a, a miscalculation? Chat me up. I think the STF was a, was a good idea. Uh, Arn was right on the money on that, that concept. I think the biggest thing to me was that Eric won the fight. Uh, the young upstart, good looking kid, tall, you know, lean, uh, beat Arn Anderson and he beat it. Not only did he beat Arn Anderson, he beat Arn Anderson up and he didn't just do it in a wrestling ring. He did it on the concrete in a parking lot. So that to me was the big story. Uh, the STF aspect of it is fine tuning it, but the, if I'm, if I'm broadcasting and giving that news, the bottom line of the story is, is that Arn Anderson and Eric Watts got into a fight outside of seven 11 and Eric Watts kicked his ass and, uh, and hurt Arn Anderson in the process. That's a story. STF wouldn't have to be played it at all, but I do understand. I certainly understand, uh, trying to get the holdover because here's the deal, Conrad, that's a finish that anybody can take, right? Uh, it's not, you ain't got to learn to do, you know, three flips and a fly and a flip flop and a fly or whatever. You don't have to learn all that. You, you learn how you need to learn how to sell and to, uh, to work either way in, into the hold or out of the hold. So I, I, I liked the uh, concept, but that wasn't the main story. So the STF was a good, good move. You know, Chris Benoit used that move a lot. That was one of his favorite go-tos. So it was, I think it was, it may have been, I believe it was Japanese oriented or, or originated. So anyway, that's what that was. I think, but beating Arn Anderson, known as one of the toughest guys in wrestling, a member of the four horsemen, blah, 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 a fixture, a hall of famer, you know, eventually obviously and then we knew he'd be great hall of fame. Uh, that was a story. Eric Watts beat Arn Anderson up in a street fight in Charlotte in front of a convenience store. It sounds good on paper. It was cast wrong. I, if somebody else had done it because Eric wasn't ready for that push, it was wrong timing at the wrong timing. And it was destined for pushback. And that's exactly what we got in a big way. Well, let's talk about some more pushback that's going on. Uh, Meltzer would write. There are a lot of fireworks this past week on the 900 line. Bill Watts and Steve Beverly ripped into Mark Madden who wrote a parody that appeared in a pro wrestling torch. It has become commonplace for Watts to rip in the newsletters because he apparently never learned how to take criticism only to dish it out, but never mentions them by name. Although he broke that rule in this instance, I found Madden's piece. One of the funniest things in a newsletter in a while, um, Bill and Eric Watts, along with dusty and Dustin Rhodes were the subject of the parody, which was built around a fictitious last TBS broadcast where each one had one last chance to push their son. I realize. Some found one specific paragraph in bad taste where Eric was in a video and was crucified, but made a comeback with the crawler on the screen. Eric Watts arising on a third day at an arena near you as a satire of one of the Watts videos that aired a few weeks back on television. There is a difference between satire and seriousness. Even when the satire is delivering a serious message, having been through all this many times before trying to 
uh, you know, make legitimate criticism of someone's decision or performance by attempting to create the idea that criticism is based on personal dislike can be an effective defense. If you can change the real issue of which there is no legitimate defense for to the fake personal issue. So the real issue is forgotten. So I guess the concept here is Mark Madden, who, uh, has always been a lightning rod, I suppose, mm-hmm. certainly fired up bill Watts here. And I guess Bill Watts took to the hotline then to make fun of Bill Watts or to make fun of Mark Madden and sort of, uh, take attention away or the focus off of the booking of his son. Did you have any conversations with cowboy specifically about goddamn, if we don't do something fast, we're going to kill him. Uh, you're talking about Eric, right? Yeah. Yeah. Eric. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm private. Of course. I was very honest with Bill. Just like I work with Vince. One on one, they they demanded honesty and succinctness. Uh, and I said, Bill, he's not ready. Oh, we'll get him ready. That's what we're here for. We got, you know, that's why I'm working. He's going to work with Arn. He'll get better every night. Well, that's true in theory. It's just the wrong timing. Don't do it now. Let him let him go or get organically gain some uh, fan support without him being shoved down people's throat and popping out their ass. Right. Just makes no, makes no sense. I said, your chances of getting him over right now at this point in time is minuscule. So, but Bill was hell bent on, uh, you know, he finally, I think a lot of that comes from this Conrad, you know, Eric was a young guy when, uh, we sold mid South to Crockett, right? He never got to live that. You know, he wanted to be like his dad. He wanted to be the, the big baby face in the territory and the, you know, the, the final say and all that other good stuff, you know, the be on top. He thought that was his birthright. He thought that was his destiny and there's nothing wrong with having those kind of goals, but he never got that chance because the company was sold and, and Bill didn't sell the company, uh, with, uh, by talking to his family first, right. You know, this is a deal where I go to Atlanta to meet Jimmy Crockett and Rob Garner to talk about doing some co-ventures. And the very end of the conversation, we were folding up our papers and our notebooks and so forth. Uh, I flip then flippantly. I just casually said, well, let me ask you guys a question. What if you just bought it? What if you bought mid South, the 121 television stations, the talent contracts, because we've got some really good young talent and we did sting Dr. Death. You know, a lot of guys are good Steiners. So, uh, th- that's what happened there. And Eric never got that chance. And, and then the company was so essentially out from under him and the family. I don't think Mrs. Watts had any issues with it. Cause you know, it was a huge payday for cowboy and her and, and it was, uh, uh, it got him home and maybe out of that fresher cooker. So it was, uh, I think there's a lot of motivation there. So bill felt somewhat obligated in my opinion to give, to help Eric out because he was, well, he was unable to help Eric out in the mid South term. It's just a weird dynamic because you feel bad for a guy who's trying his best, but you know, for whatever reason, uh, it's just, it's not going to happen. What do you think of, um, you know, Mark Madden, him doing this parody, obviously the one line may not be in the best taste, but I don't really have a problem with Mark Madden doing a parody. Everybody knows it's a parody. Why did Watts take this so personal? I have no clue. He's smarter than that. I. I remember a casual conversation uh, with Bill about that. I said, I'd let it go, man. 
And see, that was probably the wrong thing for me to say. Right. Because at that point, the alpha male in him at 6'3", 300 pounds, still thinks he can beat everybody up, uh, was like being me challenging him. I just let it go, man. So that's like him walking away from a, a fight. Well, a fight is based in reality. This is satire. This is Mark Madden's attempt to be entertaining and funny. Caustic. That's just, that's how he, that's, that's his, that's his, his radio persona. His, his entertainment persona is that he's, he's caustic and he's edgy and coarse at times. So you, you put him back in the arena that he, he, he originated from. And that was the entertainment arena. He's doing some satire. He's, he's tongue in cheeking it, but uh, Bill didn't see it that way. He saw it. He had to say something and do something or in his world, it was as if he was walking away from a fight. And folks, let me tell you, sometimes the smart people in this land are the ones that have the ability to keep their integrity and their character, <clears throat> pardon me, and walk away from the fight. Every fight is not, uh, important to finish it. Don't engage, walk away, let it go. Uh, so I heard Ron White say that one time, let it go. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, uh, we that's, 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 that's how that worked to me. That's, that's my take on it. Anyway, let's talk about the nature boy. Uh, it comes out that, uh, I guess in the newsletters or maybe internally, uh, certainly, uh, the beat is Ric Flair is leaving the world wrestling federation and he wants to come back to WCW. We know he's going to lose, he's going to lose a loser leaves match to Mr. Perfect at the end of the month. Um, but here in January is when it first becomes apparent that, you know, he's going to be coming back. When did, when, and how did you hear that flair was coming back? Just dialogue from cowboy that the talks were ongoing and it, uh, you know, he wanted, you know, Rick wanted to come back to uh, WCW. I think Rick actually at that time seemed to be somewhat motivated that bill running the ship would give be the first guy running a WCW that actually had that much product knowledge. You know, it wasn't Jim Hurd. It wasn't Kit Fry. And, you know, uh, who else is there in that list? After, this is after, after Cowboy, there's a lot of, you know, Eric did the business. Uh, but Cowboy uh, was, the, the, a lot of the guys had confidence that he knew how to call plays. He understood the business. He understood wrestling. He understood wrestlers. But unfortunately, Bill didn't want to conform to uh, trends. I tell guys this all the time, Conrad. I, I, I talk to our, the AEW talent every week and everyone's different and they're all been raised differently. Their parents are, many of their parents are younger than me. So they've been raised in a different generation with different values. And so you got to communicate with them differently. And that's the art of being a good manager or a good a motivator, whatever you want to say communication folks, no matter what your business is. No matter what your relationship is with your significant other, it's going to always be about communication. If you don't talk, you don't communicate, you're not going to win, period. And so Cowboy understood that to some degree, but he wanted them to conform to him. And it didn't work that way, folks. It just doesn't work that way. And it just doesn't. So Cowboy was uh, a little behind the times on that deal. But uh, uh, dialogue. And here's the thing. How do you not get excited to get what many of us believe the greatest worker in the history of the business sure. back on your roster. How is that hard? That's, that's not a hard decision to make, but I was not involved in the, I don't know who Rick's a, a, a representative was at that time. might've been John Taylor. God bless his soul. Great lawyer, but nonetheless, uh, you don't debate 
the concept or the philosophy of bringing Ric Flair back on your roster. You just don't. It's worth mentioning, of course, that, you know, the Watts thing had to be welcome because he left WCW because of frustrations with, uh, Jim Hurd. And now, you know, with Hurd out and Watts being a, a much more friendly, familiar, quote unquote, wrestling person, it feels like a much better fit. Meltzer would say, no doubt the biggest news is that Ric Flair will most likely be returning to world championship wrestling in mid-February. While no contract has been signed, Flair has received a release from the WWF contract that expires in September, which would allow him to join WCW after February 15th. He will be finishing can, up. All can you his- imagine that happening today? No. How the tide, the times change. Are we at the point I made just a few seconds ago about what we have to, as communicators, we have to change with the times. And to relate to these kids, well, so how do you do that? Well, one thing, they, all of them have short attention spans. So front load your statement, just like you're doing color front load your statement. And if you got time back it up. So, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, that was the deal with, to, to me with Rick was sensing the fact that bill could make him whole again. He would have input. And the other thing about this Conrad is that when Rick would come to the mid South territory as the NWA champion, even though Watts is not a member of the NWA, figure that out. I know how the, I know the answer to that, by the way. Uh, and so, and Bill and Rick got along wonderfully. And one of the reasons they got along wonderfully is because cowboy would tag out and go home and say, kid, take care, take care of the champ. Okay. So, uh, you know, that's how, that's how that worked. And that's how Rick and I got a phenomenal relationship. We, we drank whiskey and light colored liquor and chased for, uh, and, and we're both married. I don't know how smart that was, but nonetheless, you being Flair's wingman is a whole nother book, a whole nother book. But they, that, that, but they, my point was they liked each other. There was respect there, whether they liked everything about each other. I don't know that, but there was a mutual respect there as it relates to the business of pro wrestling. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Specifically, Meltzer says it's well known behind the scenes that WCW has made several major plays in recent months to try and bring Flair back, with the major holdup being his Titan contract. Although Flair had been having thoughts of returning to WCW since Bill Watts returned, and it felt all along that if he could get out of his contract at any time if he needed to, which makes the Titan party line seems like a way of saving face, although as mentioned, sources on both sides confirm the personal parting of the ways between McMahon and flair being amicable. 
And, uh, within the company, the WWF Meltzer would say losing flair has become a very divisive issue with Titan. Uh, however, since the company stated goal was to improve the wrestling quality and flair was still one or two of the three best workers in the promotion, which still has little depth when it comes to quality workers who can headline sportscaster, Harold Johnson in Charlotte, who was known to be a friend of flair's was the sportscaster who talked to wrestling fans, boycotting WCW events in Charlotte in 71 reported on January 6th that Flair had already agreed to a multi-year deal that will quote, pay him considerably more than he was making when he left WCW. That would be hard to believe since Flair's old contract was in the $750,000 per year range. Although figures of 375 to 400 have been bandied about, which would be considerably more than he would have earned in the WWF. Do you remember the reason this is of note, I guess, is because at the time, I think Watts had said no wrestler is going to make more than a thousand dollars a night working in WCW anymore. We're losing money. We got to run this like a business. It's not an ATM. So we can afford a thousand dollars for our main event. Obviously Flair's coming back for more. Is that something that cowboy you think was worried about upsetting everybody else? Cause he had set sort of a new precedent with guys like Brian Pillman and, and Arn Anderson and others. But of course, Flair certainly warrants an exception. Again, Bill didn't want to change with the times. He wanted the payroll to be set on his standard in his prime area. He thought that a thousand dollars a show was that what we said a thousand dollars a show, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, was more than uh, gracious, more than generous. Uh, I never agreed with that deal. You didn't. I saw guy told us that Bill, the the goddamn uh, Atlanta Braves don't play everybody the same. There's no cap on what they can pay a talent or a pitcher or a cleanup hitter or whatever. The Falcons play the quarterback more than they play their offensive guards. I, I didn't understand that. And he's too smart to, under, to do that. Again, he wanted to establish his superiority and his, uh, authority and, and come hell or high water. That's what I'm going to do. And I thought that was a mistake. He, he just needed to exhale. Maybe he should have some chocolate cake and just exhale and chill baby. And he, that was just not his thing. And the other issue was, and we talk about this on virtually every day, every day, it seemed like he got some sort of missive, uh, an alert about how much money the company was losing or, and what this is going to be cut. Or we got to get to this number at the bottom line, blah, blah, blah. And he did a, an amazing job of economizing, but you, you can't budget your, it's like a federal government in America. You can look like a hero by, uh, saving the budget. You know, they can't balance your goddamn checkbook, but our, our government, that's how poor pissed poor businessmen they are. They can't even, they're running in red every day. You know, I can't do that by the way. No folks listening here. Can't do that. By the way, balance your goddamn checkbook America and don't be perceived as idiots, uh, as we are in many countries right now because of leadership issues. So, uh, but Bill got this every, every, I mean, every day or something. Cut, cut, cut. And that was how he, he was brought in for that reason. He wasn't, he was brought in as much for the reason of cutting budgets and getting the costs under control as he was to actually run WCW. And so that was his priority. That's what he's told to do. And you know, then he's challenged by upper management that this is your job. Can you get this done? Okay. You, you, you said enough. Cause he's going to take that challenge. He's going to, you know, he's going to, he's going to get it done come hell or high water. No matter what, if it hair lets the governor, as my granny would say, he's going to do it. So 
that was his deal. And it was a mindset that he found himself put in that he, that he became competitive with and the, the alpha male and the big cowboy was never more prominent in that era. Let's talk about another cowboy, Dustin Rhodes. He's going to win the U S title in a tournament final from Rick steamboat on January 11th at center stage. When steamboat was counted out after Wyndham gave him a DDT on the floor. And when Rhodes sees the tape, he says he has to give steamboat a match. They wrestled to a time limit draw on a show that airs on January 23rd. We should mention the, um, the title was stripped from Rick rude because he's out with an injury. And in regards to that, Meltzer would report the biggest story has to do with Rick rude right now with rude being out until the first of March, because he has a bulging disc problem in his neck. Apparently WCW is refusing to pay him because he's not working despite the injury occurring in the ring. The bad decision. Watts reportedly wanted rude to go on workman's comp. Rude does have an insurance policy with Lloyd's of London as part of his contract, paying him in the neighborhood of $20,000 a month. If he can't work. However, the policy doesn't go into effect until rude has missed three months when, as it was explained to me, it's prorated to include the first three months and the company would pay his back salary when he was laid out, uh, only if he missed the three months and I've heard conflicting views on the nature of Rude's contract as to whether or not it is guaranteed in case of injury and what time frame. but it was a deal put together by Kip Frey, which means it would be suspect since it doesn't seem as if he was heartless when it comes to injuries as deals were put together after Frey was gone as well. Fry. Yeah. So chat, for, chat me Fry. out though. Um, the, the injury here happening in a ring and apparently Bill Watts even cuts a promo on TV that airs on the uh, 16th, I think, where he's saying that Rick Rude refused to return the United States belt. And I guess at the time that was the case, of course, eventually you guys get it back, but what a fucking story here that, what do you remember about this? What can you tell us about this? Well, rude was hard to communicate with. He's a very, uh, he could be very introverted, but, but while at the same time being much, very, very much a dominant alpha male, uh, he brooded some as we might see he's dark. Uh, was he tapped? God, yes. God, yes. He was one of the great heels. The, one of the best is look great. Good psychology, great in ring persona for a villain. Uh, but he did not play well with others and, uh, he, he didn't communicate well. Yeah. There's that word. And so then it became to at an impasse. Let's be honest about the returning the belt shit. Have another one made. How easy is that? And why did you just have one made to start with? So uh, I'm a believer that if you're a, uh, a promotion and you don't have a backup belt in case of an emergency, then you're foolish. And, and that's all we had to do there. He did get the belt. See, Bill wanted to go on TV and again, reestablish the cowboy persona as the head home show, the Vince Lombardi guy, uh, my, and it's my way or the highway. I'm going to make sure you understand that. And he didn't need to be that. He didn't, he wasn't president Jack Tunney, right? You know, he was. He, he was becoming a character again, and I can almost bet you money that somewhere down the road, that character would have found himself back in the ring, having people run into his fist. So I, I just, he, he was, Bill was very conflicted there. And I know he was having issues with the, uh, he's having, uh, he's on a second, third marriage. Maybe I'm not sure. Nice lady. He married, 
but they had issues and uh, she didn't want to live in Atlanta. And so uh, it, he had a lot of external things at play, no excuse, but these are contributing factors to his behavior at that time, because he wasn't the same old cowboy that I worked for in mid South. Let's keep it moving here and let's talk about the, uh, the tournament. Uh, round one of the U.S. title tournament, we would see Dustin beat Vinny Vegas, uh, Atlas over Van Hammer, Wyndham over Bad, Steamboat over Spivey. This is an interesting deal here, Conrad. Uh, Dustin beat the future WWE champion. Yep. Uh, Tony Atlas over Van Hammer was what it was. Neither guy was figured in to do anything significant at that point in time. Uh, Barry Wyndham always highly regarded in the company because he was a great worker. Uh, and then steamboat over Spivey, you know, Dan Spivey became one of my favorite all time personas in Wayland mercy. Love that persona. It's too bad. Oh, Danny was, he was, Danny was hurting and broken down, breaking down. And I wish we got him younger. And that with that gimmick, he was money, uh, but steamboat was also money. So uh, that's kind of how that worked. And the irony of these things is that the Dustin, uh, issue had some of the same qualities that the Eric Watts issue had. Are you here because of your name? Are you here because you paid dues and, and, and because of your skill level? So, and don't make big, don't, uh, Hey, look, Dustin's reinvented himself in AEW. I'm so proud of him. It's not even funny. He's 50 years old, man. He's reinvented his body. His work. He's not had a bad match in AEW yet. No. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the, and he's off the drugs and the alcohol. He's cleaned his life up. He's a different man. So I'm, I'm so in love with that character and him. I know Dusty would be very, very proud looking down at him. So, uh, but Dustin was, had a higher skill set than Eric did or ever would. In my opinion, it's just amazing to me that, you know, where, where we are saying there's similarities when it comes to the way they're perceived now. Man, there's just, there's no comparison. Yeah. And he looked, this tournament was all obviously designed to get Dustin over the concept of creating, getting over a new, newer, young talent, younger talent, whatever, uh, was spot on, spot on every promotion and every promoter that's not planning for their future and, and always have a plan to get some people over with consistent, positive booking. Uh, is playing, uh, playing a losing hand, you know? So, uh, I, I, but the tournament was all about Dustin. Look, he beat steamboat in the finals, right? Yeah. And by count out, are you shitting me? He beat yeah. him by count out to win the title. That makes no sense. That's political compromise booking and it sucks. Yeah, the semifinals, we see Dustin beat Atlas and then Steamboat beats Wyndham. And as we mentioned, Wyndham comes back in here and uh, sneaks a DDT on the floor on Steamboat, sort of like Jake the Snake did on Saturday night's main event many years before. Of course, that leads to the uh, the Dustin win by count out. And now he's your new U.S. champion. It's uh, it's an interesting time, man, with the whole, you know, Rick Rude's out and not getting paid. We're trying to get over Eric Watts' kid. And, oh, Dusty's kid's winning the tournament. And Flair's coming back. And it won't be too much longer. And, and Cowboy's out of here. I mean, he's done on February 10th, I think. 
All right, let's get to the actual show. Clash of the Champions opens with Bill Watts talking about the uh, the historical importance of Milwaukee to professional wrestling, and he talks about teaming with the Crusher and against Larry uh, the Axe and Harley Race and lots of history here for sure. Um, what do you think of Bill Watts becoming more of a television character here? I mean, you you sort of alluded to it a minute ago when you said you know, he's not Jack Tunney. But this is definitely what he was going to. Do you think if had he not put himself in this spot, like let's pretend for a minute he doesn't put himself on TV, he doesn't try to push his son. If he's not if he's not trying to be on TV, would he have done the torch talk and all the other stuff that ultimately would get him in some hot water? Uh, good question. Knowing him, man, he he had no he, he refused to have filters. He refused to have governors. Uh, he was a very independent, uh, strong will person. I don't think it would have made any difference. Uh, you know, he, he was always looking to find a way to defend himself or to protect himself. And he also, again, like I mentioned earlier, he's not the kind of guy, uh, that likes to run around. No, he's, he's not the kind of guy that, uh, uh, has an easy time walking away. He perceives things personally. When he's disagreed with is personal and, uh, he had this insatiable desire to flex his power and his muscle. So I'm, uh, I, I, uh, I don't think it would change a damn thing, Conrad. And he did, you know, he didn't consult me on a lot of stuff, which is fine, which is so ironic because one of the reasons I didn't get considered in a serious way, uh, to replace him was because of him. And the perceived relationship that he and I had, I was never uh, seriously considered, uh, for that role. Uh, and I heard it from Bill Shaw and everybody else, you know, where you're too close to Watts and he caused all these problems and no, you, you cause all the fucking problems yourself. You goddamn idiot by hiring Jim Hurd to start with. So don't bullshit me about that. And, uh, then he says, to, well, I said, well, we hired Eric. I said, why? I can't stay here. Oh yeah, you can. I'll get you back on the air in about six weeks. I said, that's not what Eric wants. He said, then he says, I don't care what Eric wants. I'm running the show. Eric works for me. So I just didn't feel comfortable, uh, him ready to st- stab Eric in the back. And that's what we're going to. So how are we changing here? You're pissed at Watts's leadership. And now you're going to, you're going to try to, uh, moot, uh, Eric's leadership. I didn't think it was a good idea to be a part of that whole goddamn, uh, shit show. And so uh, that's why I left. And I read online this prepare for the show today that, uh, uh, I, I got there and I know we, and I talked about this before on the air, uh, Eric's made the same thing. I was never fired. I resigned and that saved them about two and a half years of big money salary. So they were having to get rid of my cranky ass. And, uh, cause I didn't get my job and they thought I'd probably be a boo-boo face. If I could have just done my show and come to work broadcast and go home. I'm cool as hell. I've been there forever, but I made, but the best move for me was leaving. And that's been proven out time and again on, you know, my, my success there, my, you know, great run that I had the great run and I don't regret it whatsoever. Yeah. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to imagine you not wanting yeah. to up in the WWF. Do you think, uh, it's fair that Bill Watts is categorized as a hard ass? Well, he's more than that. Uh, he was a hard ass. 
Uh, I hear I, I mentioned Vince Lombardi earlier. Some people, people don't know who that is. He's the Lombardi Trophy for the winner of the Super Bowl in the National Football League. Is uh, they get the Lombardi Trophy. He's a former great coach, primarily with the Green Bay Packers, Hall of Famer, multiple championships, et cetera, et cetera. He was known as a hard ass. He was known as someone very caustic and very strong in their opinion and an unwavering. But when he talked to guys, and I talked to some of his former players, I had a great conversation one time with the Hall of Fame guard, Jerry Kramer, who wore number 64 in that team. And he would almost had tears in his eyes talking about the soft heartedness that he saw in Lombardi, but always and basically behind closed doors. He had an image. He felt like he was compelled to maintain. And I think Watts is that way off as well. Uh, I had to bring, you know, he, he was not the kind of guy that's going to go out of his way to be, be overwhelmingly nice to you, but could he be nice? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. My first hundred thousand dollar year was uh, Bill Dundee made a hundred grand or a little more than hundred grand doing a great job booking Bill. Bill Dundee was a great booker for mid South because he just re re uh, packaged and re and massaged all, all those great Memphis angles. And then it's just Memphis was a territory. And nobody saw it outside the territory, the, the, the content. Uh, so uh, I, 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 I'm, I've made a lot less money than that. And I'm, I'm doing the syndication. I'm the voice of the television show. I'm helping write publicity stories, a, a ton of things, a radio promotion, all these things. So anyway, I say, uh, hey, look, Bill, I, I got an offer to go back to work at my radio station. And I'm making, I made more money there than I'm making here. So I'm doing all this work. And Dundee's making where it was $25,000, more than I was making. I said, so apparently your role for me and your thoughts for me, I remember this is like it was yesterday. I was standing up in front. I learned this from him. I was standing up in front of his office desk. He was sitting in his office chair, looking up at me. I had it just where I wanted him. I said, so, you know, I love working here, but I, I got to make some more money. And so I'm going to, I want to give you my notice. So I can work this out right and I can go back and do my radio business and, uh, and make more money. Well, what do you need? I said, I want to, I got I want to get paid what Dundee's making. You got it. Oh, God damn it. I didn't do a very good job there. Did I, I should have asked for more, <laughs> <laughs> but he could be, it was his nature to be soft hearted. Uh, but he, 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 he got that way at times. So yeah. It's not unfair to say Watts is a hard ass, but he was more than just a hard ass. He did have a good side to him. And I think you'll find out if you talk to a lot of guys that came through here early, uh, in their careers, uh, like rock and roll express and Magnum TA and Terry Taylor and all these kids back then they were kids, how much they learned. And I'll tell you that, uh, how much they learned working for bill. They, they took that knowledge and that foundation. And then they went from territory to territory and, and applied their wares and made a living. So I don't know. I don't, a guy that has no heart doesn't do that. I don't think, but anyway, it's not unfair to call him a hard ass because he was speaking of boners. Eric Watts is out here on clash of the champions doing an interview. He doesn't make it clear what's going on either. This is directly from the observer talking about Eric Watts in the spotlight is becoming an old topic and everything that can and should be said has already been said. But all those points were emphasized as he really looked out of place. Once again, you walk this for the first, you watch this again for the first time in a long time. What'd you think of his promo near the top of the show? Uh, didn't do him any favors. 
It really didn't, didn't do him any favors at all. Again, it's a simple case of being cast in a role that you aren't prepared for. And he wasn't prepared for it just because he had the Cowboys DNA in him doesn't mean it's an automatic. And that's what a lot of ex wrestlers who push their sons never quite uh, fathom, or they don't want to admit that the DNA didn't, that the acre did fall far from the tree on this particular situation. And there's a lot of other wrestling promoters that have pushed their sons that we could name chapter and verse. So many, all one of their sons have followed the family business to, to extend their own personal ego through their sons, live vicariously through them, but they forget one thing. The son doesn't have your talent. It is all about the aptitude because you as the father got to get in the business in a territory area with no contracts and you, you were on a, on a commission, so to speak, uh, you broke in a little differently than, than the sons would. And then now you get the sons don't have to go to territory to territory, to learn their skills. They stay home. They're home raised the Von Erics, Greg Gagne, uh, Mike Graham, you know, uh, the list goes on and on George Goulas on and on where guys have won. And it's an admirable thing that you want your kid to follow your footsteps. Uh, especially if you perceive your footsteps have been productive and, and enjoyable, but sometimes we just have to realize everybody's not meant to be in the ring. And I think Eric was one of those guys. He's very creative, very intelligent, but he was not ready for that role. So it wasn't fair for what we did to him and how he was booked. It seemed, you know, I'm sure he would, he may disagree with that. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen him in years, but nonetheless, uh, it, he just wasn't ready for prime time. Let's talk about the first match. It feels like every major show in this era started with a Johnny B bad match. And this is no exception here. He's in a losing effort to cactus Jack, a cactus Jack in this era, man, he was a wild man. This is a short match and it only gets one star. And it's interesting because cactus Jack, who has thus far been a heel, uh, probably his entire career. He's turned babyface for the first time just a few days prior to this event. It's the January 5th match. It's a street fight with Orndorff uh, that's going to determine who Rude's replacement is going to be here in the clash. Uh, I guess this match uh, really shined a light on uh, Cactus and Harley Race because Harley uh, shoves Cactus lightly and then Cactus leaps off the apron to clothesline him. This brings Invader, and they're both going to beat on Cactus Jack until Orndorff can pile drive him. So at this point we've used, you know, Vader and Orndorff and, and Harley to turn cactus Jack babyface, And then eventually we know that Jack's going to come out with a shovel and nail everyone in sight. And that's been talked about a lot where, uh, I think Harley really wanted cactus to lay in the shovel shot on Vader. If you, if you get a chance this week, go out of your way to see that because he's pulling <laughs> no punches here with the idea being, I think he told. I think as legend goes, Harley race told cactus, if you don't nail him, when we get to the back, I'm going to nail you. So he goes out there and he's fucking swinging for the fences with this shovel, but it's an interesting concept. Cactus Jack as a baby face, this is supposed to be this deranged madman, And now he's going to be a sympathetic character. And we know that he's going to go on to do that really well with you guys on the WWF. What'd you think of the cactus Jack baby face turn? I had no issue with it because he's such a lovable, likable guy in real life. That if he disallowed that uh, uh, trait to be uh, on display, fans would see what many of us that knew Jack behind the scenes uh, that he was a he's a hell of a good guy and he 
he's unique and he's different. And the thing about this, even though his look, you know, he was called Cactus Jack Manson right. for a long for a long time. Obviously, referring to good old Charlie Manson. Uh, Jack uh, asked me to not call him Manson when he for, we first brought him to WCW. I saw him in world class, and I went to the uh, booking committee or the human powers that be, whatever. And so we can get this guy and he's really good. He's, you know, 300 pounds and good heel, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and no problem in the locker room. He's not a drink, not a druggie, not an alcohol guy. Same reason, the same story I told Vince when we got Mick hired, uh, he's the kind of guy we want to do business with Vince. We've got to change the trend. It can't be all about you, brother. It's gotta be a team effort here. And I, I, so we, that's why we got, we got Mick a Jersey and he got on the team and he became a star. Uh, but he's, uh, he had, here's the, my point I'm going to make is he's so smart, uh, intellectually, but instinctively that he knew how to use his look and his persona in a more baby face friendly environment. A lot of times it's just a matter of who you're working with. If you're working with a strong heel and the. The heel's over. He's going to get booed. So automatically you're probably going to get cheered. So I, I, I thought that Mick did a good job for us. And I'm so glad I saw watching the show back. There was a fan behind uh, Jesse Ventura and I, I did work the show with Ventura. Tony was there a cowboy. We, as we discussed, Tony had a nice haircut there too. What happened? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, uh, what was I saying about, oh, there's a fan behind you guys. Oh yeah. The fan has a big sign. It says Jim Ross and Cactus Jack are related. <laughs> so I don't want that. If that was a knock, a smart ass remark or, or what it was. It, it was, it was, well, it was funny. Anyway, that's, I saw that. I'd forgotten about that as well. Cause it was behind us when we did our own camera. Uh, so, and that was, you know, I, I, I've been the story about Ventura and my chemistry and, and, uh, working together and so forth. I'm not so sure, uh, that I thought we had a pretty good show on that night after watching it back. I don't generally like any of my work, but I watched it back. I thought we, I thought we did pretty good. And we showed some compatibility and some continuity, which is what we were looking for and have been not been for my inflated ego over again, over goddamn money. Uh, I would, uh, have had enjoyed my experience with Jesse, who was uber talented and I should have done a better job with him. So I keep saying that, but. I mean it. I, I just, we've missed an opportunity there because we could have been really, really good, but we didn't have enough time together. And my attitude was a shits. So, uh, it didn't work out, but I'm mad enough to admit my mistakes. And, uh, I wish we could have changed that one, but we couldn't in any event, uh, Mick being a baby face was fine with me because we did, it wasn't exactly like Conrad. You look at that roster. Here's where we were. You're trying to get a young green Dustin Rhodes over as U S champion by beating Ricky Steenbook by count out. Uh, God, uh, you got Eric Watts getting a push. Uh, you got uh, guys getting their salaries cut. You got all kinds of things are happening that are not great, but I thought that Jesse and I had a good show that night and I wish I had a chance to work with him more often, but that was my fault. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, let's talk about, uh, well, I guess we should mention Johnny B bad was not the original guy in this match. It was supposed to be Eric Watts. Uh, but Eric Watts has been quote unquote, kayfabe suspended for the Ar Arn Anderson parking lot fight. So 
Uh, that's how this came to be. And it was probably a better match as a result. Uh, next up, we've got two cold Scorpio pinning Scotty Flamingo after a Scorpio splash, uh, or the, uh, the disc that don't miss, I think, or the <laughs> one and a half gainer or whatever they're calling it here, two and a half stars. These are both going to be, uh, some pretty phenomenal ECW performers one day. Of course, we know Scotty Flamingo is going to go on to be Raven. Uh, before the match, they put together this rather interesting video. Uh, <laughs> you got to go out of your way to see this. It's, it's, it's gone viral in recent years. Uh, Meltzer would say it was kind of nice, but why spend all that money on a video when you're beating the guy on TV every week, at least make him a star first before using him to put other people over. Uh, the match was what it was not too bad. Scorpio finishes it with the twisting leg drop and, and his winning splash two and a quarter stars, but it's fun to, uh, look at two, what would be big stars in the wrestling business before they were, uh, hitting it big. Yeah. And Scorpio Scott, uh, Scorpio, Scorpio, Scorpio sky. I'm a AEW mode Tuco Scorpio was an amazing athlete, amazing athlete. Uh, he got his gig there through Vader. Him and Vader were buddies. Uh, certainly a good hire for us, but I, I will tell you that the two and a quarter stars probably was the result simply of the finish. Yeah. It, it was a spectacular finish that was new and at that time, very innovative. And so I think that the, the finish got in the stars and, but, uh, it wasn't a bad match at all. You know, they, they, neither guy was over. And so they didn't, they weren't out there forever. They, they told their story, the fast paced and did some sensationalized spots and a really cool finish. So there we were. So a nice match for, for the time that they had. You're sort of old school. What do you think of, uh, using music videos or videos rather like they did with Scorpio here to get talent over, you know, with the kids I, on the playground and the whole deal. I love it. I love, I love, uh, vignettes are, uh, such an easy, no brainer. Every wrestling promotion should use them more often and they don't have to be vignettes. They don't have to be. The, the talent will tell you that they have to have a vignette. That's because they vignettes equate to more TV time for them. Uh, and they don't care about the fact that you told your story the first minute. And now you you're telling me the story again. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in TV persona enhancement. Who are these people? Why do I, why should I like them? Why should I dislike them? Why are they here? And all that can be done in a minute. I swear to God in a minute. So I'm a, I'm a big believer of that. And I've mentioned this to Tony Khan uh, on many occasions and they're, and they're the other in a, of agreement is that we got a talent that's not on television this particular week on TNT. We should make sure that that talent has uh, a footprint on the show in another form. So you don't even have to bring them to TV to do this, but you, you get the footage, you put a little 60 second thing together with a little, maybe a little narrative. Uh, and who are these guys? So I, I'm, I'm a big believer in it. I, I'm a big, and look, some are better than others, but come on. It's a, it's a great way to expand and explain one's television persona. No doubt. Next up, we get uh, a really, really great match. Chris Benoit and Brad Armstrong. I, I can't believe this is even on the card. Uh, but yeah, here it is in, in January of 93, a three-star match here. Meltzer would say it's a good match. Benoit needs to be a baby face. And by the end of the match, he was a baby face. The only way he could make it as a heel is as a Bobby Eaton type of a tag team, with either a partner or a manager, because he can be hated that way. Because with his ability, he'll either be a baby face to the fans or not get over. 
It was one hot move after another in the opening sequence, slow in spots and people were actually chanting boring, but then they started to pick things up and Benoit got over by doing an incredibly dangerous flying clothesline off the top rope onto Armstrong, who was standing on the apron. And it's the same move that Kensuke Sasaki tried and ended up with a broken angle ankle. They did a lot of hot moves at the end. And then this is a great line. I didn't know this quote. Jim Ross called the winning move, a German suplex, which may be the first time that the term has ever been used on a U.S. broadcast. Now, of course, Meltzer would say it was actually a dragon suplex, which is a full Nelson taken over into a German suplex. But still, I didn't know that at this point, as far as Meltzer knew, no one had used the phrase German suplex before on TV. There you go, Conrad. That's why I'm the voice of wrestling, brother. <laughs> brother. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, hell. I mean, obviously people are. Are, are down on Benoit and we know why, and it was horrific, but it is cool to see an early Benoit match in WCW. But what's even cooler to me is that it's against Brad Armstrong and Brad Armstrong yeah. is one of the unsung heroes of wrestling universally well likes polar opposite of Benoit today, of course. Uh, but this is uh, sort of a snapshot of what WCW had on the roster, just sort of middle of the card, hanging out really two top talents as far as when the bell rang. Yeah, it was great. I, I, that was just a, that was textbook. Uh, well, you know, like you said, uh, I love Chris Benoit. I, I worked very diligently to get this, uh, Chris Benoit work wherever I was because I thought he was that good. Uh, technically in the ring, he was absolutely untouchable. I, I despise the last 48 hours of his life, obviously. And anybody in the right mind would say the same thing. Sure. I get, and I get this question. So Conrad, when you and I go to, uh, to work for Kenny McIntosh, the Vincent man of Europe, uh, and his harem of beautiful women, which is kind of ironic, but nonetheless, that's a story for another day. Uh, I would say that, uh, we'll get some questions about, uh, why, uh, why is it Chris Benoit in the hall of fame? Well, I'll, I'll give you the, I'll, I'll try to make this elementary for you. I would tell you this. I know Chris, I knew Chris very well. He did not like to disrupt. He did not like to become a, a problem or, 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 you know, he wanted, he was a company guy. And okay. How do you explain that? Is, okay, last 48 hours, you got to deduct this now. Come on. But he's a, he's just a, he would have said, I don't want to go in the hall of fame because I will be a distraction. And he's absolutely correct. There's no way in any hall of fame that I would induct Chris Benoit simply because his induction and the last 48 hours of his life, which is what everybody wants to focus on. Yeah. They don't want to focus on Brad Armstrong and Chris Benoit having a hell of a wrestling match at the class 20, uh, the last class of champions. I work, they did, they would rather talk about the murder suicide. And that would be the, that would be the under, that would be the media, the internet, the, the, the dirt sheet guy, everybody would be talking about, you know, that, 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 that time. And I don't think he'd like that. I really don't believe he'd like it. So is his skill set good enough to go in the hall of fame? Oh my God. Yes. Is it all about being your skill set? No, it's not. So, uh, I think he, we, I think WWE and anybody else at WWE specifically, cause they get the most publicity with their hall of fame would say the same thing. It's just, he, it would be a distraction and unfair to the other talents being inducted and their families. We should mention, you know, if, if you can't watch a Chris Benoit match, I understand, but, but if you can, 
this is this is a great one to watch on this show just because it's Brad Armstrong, you know, on a clash of the champions and a fairly high profile spot, at least for him. Next up though, something that no one will uh have a hard time with. Well, maybe. Vinny Vegas and Tony Atlas in an arm wrestling match where both guys go left-handed and Meltzer would say, boy, was this strange? And what exactly was its purpose? Is this to begin a Van Hammer Vegas feud, uh, Vegas sub for Van Hammer, who was out with a hernia really unbelievable to look back at Vinny Vegas and realize this is about to be the guy holding the biggest belt and most important belt in all of wrestling. And it's not going to be too terribly long after this. Yeah. A couple of years, a couple of years. Well, look, anybody that has been around athletes and when he was, was, was it, uh, so broken down with his legs and so forth, uh, you, you gotta pay attention to an athletic seven footer and he was articulate. He was smart. Was he skilled and smooth and all that? No, he wasn't. He was learning his skill set. But you, you got a guy that's seven feet is an athletic seven footer and a big size, a heavyweight is going to get more, more chances than a smaller guy. I'm sorry to say that it's going to piss some guys off. They're under six feet tall that are listening, but it's just the reality of, of the, of the business. So Kevin was a, always a high prospect and, uh, you know, but who, who in the hell I would never, he said, Hey, by the way, this guy's going to be the WWE champion in a year in a couple of years. No. I'd say that ain't going to happen. You go be crazy. So, but it did happen. It did indeed happen. And, uh, I guess we should talk about this. I don't know when we'll talk about uh, arm wrestling matches, uh, being a part, a spectacle in wrestling have been around. I don't know when it started, but I remember seeing them in the early eighties and, and obviously it's become a spectacle that has gone away. I don't know if it's because arm wrestling isn't as popular or what. Uh, but certainly had a little bit of a mainstream touch when Sylvester Stallone did his over the top movie in the late eighties. And it became a thing again. What did you think, you know, as a, a segment on the show, let's throw in an arm wrestling match. And I guess if you've got guys who are, you know, imposing to look at, but right. maybe not the best. Once the bell rings, this is a nice way to sort of camouflage some of that. It's a nice way to forward a storyline without pinning someone one, two, three. If you get another week without doing that to continue to build upon the storyline, uh, then it's a good deal. When I was a kid, uh, watching championship wrestling out of Tulsa in the, in that Oklahoma territory that, that, uh, the cowboy and uh, Leroy McGurk uh, were the honchos of, um, the, there were every now and then there'd be a guy come through. There's a big, thick, like a heel guy or yeah, and some baby faces. But that uh, the arm, the, the announcer would say, well, you know, he's also known as he has never lost an arm wrestling fight uh, contest folks. And so even to the point that some promotions were bold enough to let the guy take challenges from the audience. And of course, you know, you can't lose. So, uh, so the, these little ways to establish a storyline. I mean, if a guy was that big and strong and powerful and shoulders and arms and all that stuff are Im- immense. It helps get him over. It helps him to say, well, he's an arm wrestling champion. That means his clothesline is more dangerous. His headlock is squeezes harder, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was an ongoing. It was just one of those angles that you could use maybe once or twice a year 
unless you actually got into a scenario where, uh, you know, you have a best of five or best of whatever, but it was, a, it was established old angle. And, uh, so I had no problem with the arm wrestling side and it was a different deal too. You got, you know, uh, Kevin Nash, AKA Vinny Vegas at the time was a new kid on the block. And, uh, Tony Atlas is always referred to as one of the strongest men in wrestling. And just look at him. You tell that was amazing physique. So it kind of made sense in that regard. It's not something I would do every week. It's not something I would do every quarter, but maybe once or twice a year, if it fit the story, it's not a bad thing. Let's talk about uh, Kevin Nash for a minute. He recently went a little viral, I guess he posted, uh, sort of a side-by-side picture before he had the knee replacement and rehabbed it. And he's done all the stem cell stuff and he's really taken his, uh, uh, is, is training to another level with regards to rehabbing old injuries with his, mm-hmm. his hips and knees and all that. But he showed a side-by-side where he explained the reason he had to finish his career and retire from in the ring is because he was hobbled with these injuries. And I don't think I've seen a before and after quite like what Nash posted. When did you know how severe Nash's leg injury or knees were? And, and, you know, it's become, uh, something that he's become somewhat famous for when he tore the quad in the ring on, on raw, but it felt like it was habitual there for a while. And then when you see the before and after it's shocking. Yeah, it is shocking. Well, uh, I knew Kevin had, uh, like a lot of athletes, especially guys that played a lot of basketball. Cause again, you're running on a hardwood, uh, and it's challenging for your knees. Uh, and so. And, and he has, his DNA was as such that it was, he was always worried about that. You know, Kevin's dad, uh, Kevin's from Detroit, but Kevin's dad grew, uh, died at a relatively young age from a heart failure, as I understand it. And I think that always not only just losing his father, but losing his father to something that may have been able to be prevented if he had done more, uh, uh, precautionary medicine and, and, and all these blood work and all these things and a lot of old school guys. I don't think, I don't know that my dad, God bless his soul, ever had a blood test in his life ever. And the old school guys are just that way, man. Uh, again, it's a sign of weakness. I can't go to a case. I can't go to the doctor, blah, blah, blah. My dad had a, my dad had a, a, a thing on his toe, like a, or like a callus or something. And so instead of going to the doctor and getting it removed, he took out his case knife that was sharp enough to shave the hair on your arm and perform surgery on his own toe. How brilliant that was is at the end, end of the day, that little toe was, uh, was, uh, removed. So he didn't want me to know how stupid his decision he made. So I go visiting one time and his, his, uh, his, uh, the lady he married after he left my mom was, uh, ask your dad about his toe. So I I, uh, we, a little bit later in the conversation, I said, dad, what's you doing on your toe? Oh, nothing. It's all right. It's all right. I, how many toes you got now? <laughs> Are you that stupid? Why do you go to the doctor? Right. Oh, hell son. You know, you, you guys, your generation goes to the doctor to drop a hat. We were raised differently. You know, okay. Good, good for you. The reason they were raised differently because my dad was raised in the country and we didn't even have a doctor in our town. Right. Till I got in high school. So there was no, you know, you got to go out of state. It's Arkansas where we live or, or, or over toward Tulsa or something, but that was dad. And that was, and all those guys are that way. But Kevin, I think had that, that, that 
thought. And I look, I got the same thing, man. I will fully admit I do more things to uh, check on my cardio, my cardiologist and all that work than anything, because I had my mother died of a heart attack. My father died of a heart attack uh, as a result of a pneumonia thing, but caused his lungs to fill up. He had a heart attack. Both my grandma and my grandpa's died of heart attacks. I'm a walking time bomb, but I go to the doctor regularly to get my uh, heart checked and the blood work and the stress test. Cause I'm afraid I don't want to die in a Marriott on the road while I'm doing wrestling. And I've had that sensation for years and that may come back to haunt me and say, well, remember that time JR said on the podcast that he didn't want to die in a Marriott. Well, he died in a Marriott. He JR's no longer with us. Jesus. I don't want that to happen. No, yeah, we can't fun. do that. Conrad. We got shit to do, man. <laughs> uh, let's go to the next match here. The wrecking crew rage and fury. You know, went over Tom Zink and Johnny gun. Should have been booked uh, two and a quarter stars. Meltzer says most people who called here hated this, but I couldn't find anything wrong with it. Zinc's timing working with both crew members was surprisingly good. Gun did a great dive over the top rope, clotheslining both men on the floor. Gun was pinned after a move called the wrecking ball. When fury who's Laurenitis, uh, held him on a shoulder breaker in rage. Who's green came off the top rope with a double sledge. Admittedly, Rage and Fury are going to have a hard time being anything other than this week's version of Tex and Shanghai. But I thought the work this past or in, in this match was a surprise. Pretty interesting pairing. Uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. like you said, that I would have put this on a Clash of the Champions. You watched it for the first time in a long time. What did you think? TV match at best. Uh, neither team was over, so the fans didn't have a dog in the hunt. The fans had not made an emotional investment in either team. It was filler. It was a good chance for you to go to the bathroom or go fill up your beverage or whatever. Uh, the uh, Al Green was a, a veteran, been around for a while. Got a break. And, you know, he was a gassed up dude, looked good. Mark Laurinaitis was the younger brother of uh, Joe. Uh, and he was uh, he went on to become, a, I think, a graphic artist or something along those lines in the computer world. Got a good job a skill that he learned and that was the best for him because as long as he was around, he was always going to be compared to the little brother, one of the road warriors. So, uh, but they're both guys are good guys. It's just a fact, a simple fact that no one cared about them at that point. And so they should not have been on the show. Uh, and I, I, it'd been interesting to see, go back and see what the minute by minutes were on this, on this event. That might be, if we ever could get access to them anyway, that'd be an interesting thing to see what the, audience was buying and what they tuned out and when they came back, et cetera, et cetera. But that match ethic, ethic, no, nothing wrong with the work. Good guys. It's just, they weren't over and they should not have been on the show. It's remarkable when you think about, you know, how much talent there is in that family. I mean, I think most people know about Johnny Ace and road War animal, but that there was a third brother who was not only involved in wrestling, but was on a clash of the champions. That's a cool little footnote. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and Mark Laurinaitis was a really a, a good kid. The, a very, he wasn't spoiled by the wrestling business. I can't say that for other members of his family and how that affected their personality and their, their survival techniques. Uh, sometimes not admirable in my opinion, I'm, and it's personal with me and I'm biased. So I apologize for being that way, but he's a good, he was a good kid. The lucky part for Mark is he got out of the wrestling business. And he got into something that he could, could have a consistent paycheck. 
that could build a career with that has benefits. So uh, I was very happy that I have to, I got to meet him and know him a little bit, but he was a sweetheart of a guy, but he just, he was a lot like, he was a lot like Eric. He was a lot like Dustin. They're always going to be compared to an elder in their family. And that's something that he needed to work. We needed to work out. And I think he just got tired of fighting that battle and saw this. And he's a smart kid. Hey, I, I can go do this. And, and, and my, I could be able to tie my shoes when I'm 40. Next up is a series of bizarre interviews. Sting accepts the hamburger eating contest against Vader. Well, I guess it's the white castle of fear challenge. It's announced that Van Hammer was injured in that cage match. That's going to be four on three. So Harley race does an interview and fires barbarian saying he doesn't want anyone around who is friends with cactus. Jack barbarian starts choking Harley and Vader hits him from behind and Orndorff pile drives him on the floor. Meltzer would say this wouldn't have been bad, except number one, they've already turned too many people and why turn barbarian number two, they're doing almost the exact same angle later in the show. And number three, the heels had a four on three advantage and then eliminated someone on their own team to even up the sides. Doing that makes no sense, even in the illogical world of WCW. A lot to unpack here. Before we talk about the barbarian thing, we've talked about these little mini movies before, but these are uh, an Ole Anderson slash Sharon Sadello initiative. Uh, Sharon Sadello did long uh, vignette, little mini movies, primarily starting around the uh, pay per views and uh, the clashes. Uh, and they were, uh, they had a budget and they're, they're, they're hell bent on making sure they used every cent of their budget, uh, from what I understood. And the fact that they, it showed that there were frustrated movie directors, uh, screenwriters. Some of them were, I mean, th- what was the, the thing we did with, uh, Vader coming out of the water one time or something. Yeah. You, something. you had a little person blow up a boat. That Sting yeah. and um, Davy Boy Smith were on, and uh, Colonel Robert Parker and Sid Vicious and and Vader were all walking on the beach, and they had this little person place a bomb on the boat, and it blew up. And then there was the other time that you guys had lasers <laughs> shoot out of Jake the Snake's eyes, and of course Sting's eyes, and then there was those little square hamburgers that led to a feud with Vader and Sting. Just yeah, really stupid. Uh, yeah, stupid. It's this. You, that's a, that, that's one of the sad parts about the the uh, experience for me down there in Atlanta in that era was the fact that uh, a lot of decision makers there were reading the Observer, so therefore they perceived that they had acquired the knowledge to really contribute to a conversation uh, in an intricate way. You always want to know if you, did you like this? Did you like that? How this work? How the minute by minutes, quarter hour ratings, blah, blah, blah. But man, when you let the, open the door, just, it's like having a, somebody that's a, a football fan sit in a quarterback meeting in the NFL. Wait a minute. Well, I'm a football fan. I, I read, I read the observer. <laughs> so it's just, it was not a good scene. It was not a good scene at all in that, in that regard. So, uh, but it, that, but Dave's right about that. None of the things we did with the barbarian at that time were, uh, made any sense. And I think the reason for that is that he was kind of pigeonholed as nothing more than a mid card heel. And so his equity was limited 
in the eyes of the decision makers. So, uh, but you, you're, he's the military's right. Some of these things that didn't have make any sense. And sometimes Watts would, would let himself float away from the creative cause he got bored. And then some things would happen that he had kind of co-signed, but not to all the details. That's another, that was another in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, infrastructure problem that we had there. So, uh, but I, Dave's right on that, on that creative one, the barbarian it just, you know, it made no sense. And anytime you can have the baby faces in, in jeopardy and at a disadvantage, i.e. a four on three or whatever, it generally works. It's generally easy to figure out that formula of a match to strategize it towards a good story. What do you think about, uh, the way Dave classifies Harley here? He says, Harley is one of the greatest of all time, but he's not going to make it as a lead manager. He reminds me too much of the mid South when they kept pushing Skandar Akbar as lead manager, he was reliable and knew how to do his job, but his act was stale and his charges became run of the mill heels because of it. Although Vader isn't in any danger of that. Do you think that maybe Harley's act was stale here in 93? Well, I'm as Harley race. Mark still am. God bless his soul. Uh, he was, uh, absolutely extraordinary. So I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel that way about Akbar either. I'll disagree with Melster on that one. Uh, but anybody that's on TV every week is in danger of being overexposed, especially in some companies like WWE now has so many different products, uh, on the air, you know, several days a week. And the more you see somebody, the less special they become. That was an issue I had with the big show. You know, we, we, we talked about that here lately. And, and I said, you know, we, he was a high priority Vince, especially Shane. We wanted to get him hired. Uh, we, we worked hard on recruiting him and God went to Florida and the old in-home visits, uh, and with Jerry Briscoe and I, and I said to Jerry, I said, I hope we don't make the mistake of overexposing this big son of a gun because he's money. And I said, we should book him like Andre. And only meaning this, he, he, the, the less seen, the better the value. Right. And we overexposed the big show. Um, he's on TV almost every week. And it's just, he's an attraction guy. He's not an everyday guy. He's not a, a Cody Rhodes. He's not a John Moxley. He's not an every week kind of guy with a diverse, uh, uh, skill set. He's a big man that has a limited skill set, but he's so impressive and he's so uniquely looking and all that, that he's always going to be special unless we overexposed him and we did that. So now, you know, it's like in his situation, he's got to go away for an extended length of time, uh, to, to get new again. And that should not have had to happen. He should have been new all along, just not being overexposed. Let's keep it going. Talk about the next match here. We've got Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas beating Brian Pillman and Steve Austin by DQ. So Steamboat and Douglas will retain the WCW and NWA tag team titles. They go about 13 minutes. Uh, Meltzer would say, why is it that Brian Pillman is always in the best match on every major show? And what did Shane Douglas put in his Wheaties this morning? I mean, he was excellent. Fast paced action. One good spot after another early perfect psychology nearly perfect timing and a lot of hot moves. Another excellent match. Although a shade down from the tag match at Starcade. Uh, he gives it three and three quarter stars. Um, we should mention that, um, 
there's a spot here where Douglas is uh, hit by Steve Austin with the title for the DQ. Douglas comes up bloody and he says, which I'm sure will be told was a hard way, but the way it was emphasized on camera and the coincidence of timing makes me suspicious. It wasn't. And then Pillman would whip Steamboat and Douglas with the tag belts until Scorpio, Bagwell, and Brad Armstrong make the save in a little post-match brawl. So a DQ, uh, but a very good match. And then he tries to raise a little bit of controversy about, you know, how the, the quote unquote juice was obtained was, was bleeding off limits here in January of 93. Is that what he's insinuating? Yeah, of course. Uh, he's probably saying that, uh, we, we maybe stepped over the line of company policy, the blatant and, uh, uh, use of blood was frowned upon. Uh, and so, yeah, it was not a, it was, it was a little bit of a hot button. So I don't know, you know, did the, did the moment call for it? Look, if you get hit in the face with a championship belt and for those in WWE that listen to my podcast, I'll say it here, the strap, right? <laughs> this street is app. Uh, it's logical, but it, it, you don't want to go against company policy, but again, the Cowboys the cowboy and the boys wanted to do it and. It didn't, it did fit the moment. And, uh, but I'll tell you this, I've always, I always believe that Shane Douglas had an amazing upside and he was used pretty well, maybe as well as he's ever used in the business, except the ECW aficionados would disagree with that. And I could see that too, but Shane was used well there. I thought he had a real great upside. You know, Shane Douglas name was, his name is Troy Martin. He, he, his, he was given his, his ring name by Eddie Gilbert. When Eddie Gilt was booking. I know that. And uh mm-hmm. Shane Douglas, good baby face name. But a very smart kid, did a good job. And, and here's the other thing. He's working with the Ricky Steamboat. You talk about going to the master class. Steamboat, you know, amazing, amazing. He had a great background. You know what he's doing. And then you have uh, Pillman and Austin who had this unplanned chemistry. They got along, they traveled together. Uh, Brian was one of the first guys that I, I can recall Austin, even, uh, re- regarding as a confidant, someone that Steve trusted, you know, uh, if you see st- most pictures of Steve nowadays, if you see him with a big, thick, uh, gold chain on, he got that from Brian. So they had a very strong relationship and that helped me build my relationship with Austin because, uh, I was responsible for bringing Brian into WCW from Calgary. Thanks to, uh, Kim Wood, the strength coach of the Cincinnati Bengals at the time who helped train, uh, a new Brian very well from their Cincinnati days. So, uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Shane Douglas, of all those guys, all those guys are classic. And those are the four kind of guys that you could exercise from your other group of, uh, of other, uh, under delivering talents. And build part of your roster around those guys in tags or singles. Cause if you look back at it, Conrad, I think you might agree that all four of these guys would be just as effective in singles. If that, once they got over as they would in these tag matches. Let's, uh, I'll keep it going here. I guess before we do though, we should talk about the pairing steamboat and Douglas. what did you think of them as a team? Good. I loved it because we thought I believed. Cowboy believed that Shane Douglas had the look, the aptitude, the intelligence, 
he was articulate. He was well-spoken. He looked good that he had an upside that we had, that had previously been untapped. Uh, but being able to travel to work, sit in the locker room to talk about your trade, your profession with a man, the character and the integrity and the skill of Ricky steamboat can't do anything, but help you. And I think it helped, uh, Shane a great deal working with steamboat. I think, you know, I, I'm sure he'd probably say the same thing, but, but they had, they fed off, Shane could feed off Ricky and follow Ricky's example on a lot of things as far as timing, transitions, philosophy, pacing. And of course, then Brian and Austin were both so goddamn competitive that they, one wanted to outdo the other. They worked their ass off. They became a really, really good tag team, but everybody knows that there's nothing wrong with tag team wrestling, uh, nothing at all wrong with being a tag team wrestler. But at some point, most tag teams have that desire to be single stars. And I think, uh, Pillman, Austin, Douglas, and Steamboat, Steamboat already been there, but he wanted to go back. There was more money there. Instead of splitting the payoff for four ways in one match, you get, you get so much money for a match and splitting it four ways is a whole lot worse than splitting it two ways. So that's, that's kind of the mathematical story. The answer to that deal, but Steamboat and Shane was, I, I liked him a lot. I liked him a lot. And, and Ricky Steamboat had proven over the years with Jay Youngblood and, and others that he was a phenomenal tag team guy. He, he could compliment anybody he worked with. That's how a brilliant Ricky Steamboat's game was. Talk to me a little bit about everybody else besides Steamboat. It feels like everybody had the greater success outside of here. Of course, Pillman and Austin and Douglas are all going to wind up making a stop in ECW. Uh, and then Pillman and Austin go into the WWF and have their biggest money. Uh, periods of their career. Of course, Austin became the biggest star there ever was, but even, even Douglas, you know, it feels like you've got a lot of great young talent here, but for a variety of reasons, they all wind up easing out into something else. Let's focus on Douglas specifically. Why don't you think Douglas was long for this world here in WCW and, and why did he need ECW to sort of find his groove? I think, uh, Shane's intellect at times, uh, intimidated his peers. Uh, he, he, uh, was very well-spoken. He used uh, big words, uh, accurately, by the way, I think, uh, he may have been perceived by some of the guys in the locker room and maybe some in the front office that he just, uh, he, he wasn't that congenial. Uh, but I didn't, I never saw that. I enjoyed chatting with him and. And, uh, I see him every now and then at one of our shows or, uh, you know, some of these shows we do from time to time, card shows or wizard world type stuff. Uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a good guy. And, and he had his drug and alcohol issues. Like a lot of people have can't hold that against him. It's, it's an illness. It's a sickness, but it seems to me like he's got things under control. And, but I just think a lot of guys were, they might've looked at him as being, a, because he was educated, he was formally educated. And a lot of the boys at that era were not. And I think sometimes he was perceived as being a little bit of an elitist, uh, erroneously. So, but that was seemed to be the case. Our main event, it's a thunder cage match. Dustin Rhodes, sting and cactus Jack on one side, big Van Vader, Barry Windham and Paul Orndorff on the other. Of course, we were supposed to have Van Hammer in here. He is not here. Uh, barbarian has now been kicked out of the group. So. Instead of it being four on three, now it's uh, three on three. 
And before we get there, Vader does an interview to set up another angle. Ron Simmons comes out. They go at it with Simmons, initially clearing house on Vader and Harley. And then Simmons jumps outside the ring to continue to pound on Harley and Vader attacks him from behind does the elbow drop, a big splash, a couple of shoulder breakers. And by this point, I think everybody was expecting, uh, something to happen here. Uh, the cage match starts at this point and Meltzer says if the show had gone any longer, it would have ended, it would have ended up being a singles match sting and Dustin were all that was left of the original four man face team. And now it's a heel trio of Barry Windham, Vader and Paul Orndorff. He says it's an all action brawl and a good match. Cactus Jack runs down to the ring with wire cutters, opens the cage door at 10 minutes. Uh, he gets in and winds up hitting Orndorff with his uh, boot and pins him at 11 minutes. So three and a quarter stars. I mean, I see what they're trying to do with, uh, with cactus, but man, this is a little confusing because we had four guys and then we had on each team and then it was four on three and then it was three on three. And then there was another substitution because Ron's out. So now cactus is in, this is weird. Wild West, man, it was wild West and not in a good way. Uh, in my opinion, you think it was challenging for you, uh, to watch it, uh, it's challenging for Ventura and I to broadcast it and provide the narrative. Things kept changing and evolving quickly, quickly. Uh, and so nothing got a chance to kind of set in and allow the audience to process. That's one of my bitches about some of the talents in the, in the business today, they work too fast and they do wonderful things, but they don't let it breathe so that the audience can process what they just saw. And, uh, so that was kind of how I, I looked at this match. It was, it was free flowing and on rolling, rolling, rolling. But the bottom, at the end of the day, Conrad, it was the last Clash of Champions main event good old JR would ever call. Yeah, we should mention this is, uh, you're not long for this world, and neither is Bill Watts. Watts is gone. Again, this is going down on January 13th. Watts is gone on February 10th. JR is gone uh, just about two weeks after that, I think February 25th. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but you're not the only person that's gone. Meltzer would write Medusa is definitely gone. Don't know details. I just know she wanted to wrestle and the company didn't have any ideas in that direction. This is purely speculation, but it would make all the sense in the world for Medusa to go to the WWF and manage Shawn Michaels and feud with Sherry. You know, she leaves before you do what leads to Medusa leaving here. It's always one of the two C's baby cash or creative. And I'm assuming that Watts being, uh, the type of man that he was or is probably might not be that way now, but Women's wrestling to him was always going to be, uh, connected to the great Moolah and her troop. And a lot of guys, uh, for rightly or wrongly did not grow up idolizing, uh, Moolah because when she came with her girls into the territory, as I said this before, the territories only got so many spots for, on the cards. So when the women came in and, and a tag match, there's four of them. That means that four of your regular guys are off work. They're sitting at home, not making any money because if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. So they were unbooked. They didn't get paid. And so over the years, the animosity regarding, uh, a special attraction matches, they were never main events. We're not talking, uh, Charlotte flair. We're not talking Becky Lynch or Oscar or any of these other great stars of today. Uh, they're, you're talking about. A standard match. They've seen the same match more than once. 
Uh, it was a routine, very routine oriented looking. And so a lot of the guys thought it was a expose and they thought that they didn't like the fact that some of their buddies, their traveling buddies that you, you look, you may have unbooked the guy that was rolling the joints on the trip. I can't have that type deal. So that was a, that was a thing. Uh, cowboy just did not, he didn't, it wasn't today's wrestling. It wasn't today's athlete. They didn't look like the, the, uh, the women of today. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they just didn't resemble it. It just was a different, whole different deal. What are you saying? It's hard to even equate it. So I don't think she saw that WCW is not going to use women and I ain't going to have no gender reassignment. So I'm screwed. And you know, she could, but Meltzer's idea about her managing Shawn Michaels and then subsequently having a few with Sherry Martell, I thought was an excellent idea and why that didn't happen, you know, personalities or whatever priorities again in that era, Conrad women's wrestling was not considered to be cool. And the male, uh, the alpha male decision makers were do, going to do all they could to, to be pulled into the future. And, and one of those things is going to be the last transition there is to have uh, a female wrestling on every card. There was always perceived by the old school guys as a once or twice, twice a year attraction. And, uh, thank God that's changed, but that was the deal. I think that's why she left. It's always cash or creative. And I'm sure that if she wasn't going to be booked and she wasn't going to be getting a lot of work, uh, the cash is going to be very, very limited. And as, as the days go by and you're inactive, uh, you lose something. So I think that was her situation because she, Medusa is a great friend of mine. Uh, and I think the world of her, she could have helped a lot of people. She could still help a lot of people, quite frankly. Uh, I, I can see her being a great female manager today. Uh, and why WWE hasn't uh, jumped on that. Maybe they are, or they're trying to, I don't know, but they got so many women that need something. Uh, and we all use, you know, AEWs could use something. She's that talented. So I don't know where it's all going to go, but that's, I think she left because there was no work for her there of any viable consequence and her income was going to suffer. I should mention just a few months later, she's in the WWF as a lingerie blaze. She winds up winning the women's title and you know, you actually get there around the same time as her, but somebody else is coming into WCW before you're out of here. Uh, I guess at one point Meltzer would say that Davy boy was even scheduled to debut on this clash, but there were problems in negotiating a contract release from Titan. Uh, so he's going to be in very quickly, allegedly. Uh, he's agreed to work a hundred dates during 1992, presumably for a hundred thousand dollars at that thousand uh, dollars, mm-hmm. maximum, but he's going to come in after you're gone. So you guys are sort of trading places. Uh, do you remember what some early creative ideas may have been for Davey boy before you were out of there? No, just the fact that he had the ability to get over as a baby face. I think that's what the company saw him as as a baby face. And the fact that through their contacts with CNN where they could leverage CNN on certain broadcast entities. Uh, so you carry, you will let you carry CNN or whatever of our programming, but we need you to also carry world WCW. And so by doing that and having that chip to play in the UK where Davey was from and being from Manchester and a proud, uh, a Brit, uh, that he would be, a, a the door opener to get a, a a marketing foothold in the UK. So I think that was the biggest picture, but it was a new face. You know, he, he was, uh, you know, he had all that experience in stampede where Stu Hart managed that 
very firmly and guys came out fundamentally sound as heck. So, and Davey was younger at that time. He looked great. So a baby face specifically underscored to be a a significant asset in the United Kingdom, which is a a territory that uh, WCW wanted to try to pursue. And we know that you're going to be pursuing some new employment the very next month. Um, how, how far into, I mean, at this point, how would you classify your sort of contentment with WCW? I mean, does, does this not become something where you think it's unworkable or I'm unhappy here? I want to see what else is out there until after the whole Watts change and the reorganization, so to speak in early February. I mean, where are you in mid, mid January 93? Well, I did not like the, the protocol. I did not like our, our internal business systems. Uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, even though the cowboy was the boss. Uh, and he was easily influenced. He was easily pissed off. He felt compelled to uh, respond when it was unnecessary. So that was uncomfortable. And here's why another, here's the main thing. I got so much heat on me for, for being Watts's protege. The guy gave me a job in 1974. Okay. And, uh, so he was, and I was 22 years old. So yeah, he was really, really, uh, crucial in my development of, of the product of product knowledge. I got a great education from Bill Watts. I understood about how to book, how to pay, uh, storyboarding, writing TV. I, I learned a ton that I would not have gotten from anybody else. He liked me. Uh, and I, I was a good driver cause he didn't want to drive. So I was a driver, uh, and I was an Oklahoma boy. Like he was, we both love the Sooners. Uh, so anyway, that that's kind of, so he was a different cat than he was when he got to Atlanta, but it seemed like in Atlanta, when people were afraid to say something to bill that he needed to hear, I got it. Well, I don't know. I, I can't, I won't say this to Watts, but well, you should say it to him. But don't do it in a group. Go in his office, make a make an appointment. I know that sounds uh, out of your way because you're a wrestler. You shouldn't have to make appointments, but it is a business. Make set up a time to go see him. Go in his office, shut the door, and have a talk. Right. Oh no, you know he's going to bury me. He'll bury me. I said, well, if you make your case clearly and enough and uh, it's logical, he ain't gonna. He's not going to bury it if it's going to if it's going to make the company money. But the guys didn't want to do that, so I got the shit end of that deal. And, and because they would say things to me through uh, two Watts through me. And it was, it was a pain in the ass, man. It just, every day was something you oh, here. Like, there's a good, here's a, a little illustration. Well, did you hear what your, uh, your uh, mentor did today? No, you're going to tell me, aren't you? <laughs> so that's what you got. So I was getting tired of that. And then when Watts left, I was actually kind of relieved. Cause maybe this shit will subside now and we'll move on. But right behind that thought came, well, who's going to get Watts's job? Are they going to hire someone with the product knowledge? Going to go outside again. Is there going to be another, uh, Jim Hurd? There's going to be another Kip Fry. Is going to be another cowboy? Uh, you know, is it going to be another Oli revisited again? Whatever. Uh, and I, when that happened, uh, business picked up for me as far as I felt like, okay, good. I won't be blamed for all Bill's mis- mis- misgivings and, and, uh, issues. And we can start this kind of clean, maybe get a clean slate and, oh, wait a minute, by the way, 
why don't you, why don't, JR, why don't you uh, put, throw your hat in the ring? And that's, and I, so I never got, the, I never got that opportunity because when I met with, like I told you earlier, when I met with Bill Shaw, it was, you know, he, the watch, he said, the watch thing has hurt you. And so there's no way I can hire you to run the department, but it hurt you. So, but if you'll, that's again, hang around here. You got a good, you got a big contract. It's all guaranteed. We messed that up. Uh, and, and just wait for six weeks and I'll tell Eric, I'll put you back on the air. Which I know. Now look, if you tell Eric, you know Eric better than as good as I do. Not better, probably better. You do podcasts with him every week. Uh, comes out on Monday, right? That's right. Eighty-three weeks. Eighty-three weeks. Good, good show. Eric does a good job. But he's not the kind of guy that's going to take well to me being the wedge between him and the head honcho of Bill Shaw. If Bill Shaw is going to stand up for me and put me back on the air uh, because he thought I was the best announcer for that role at that time that he had, that he had, then that's going to piss Eric off because Eric did not want me on the air. Uh, and that's my take on it. And I understand my regionality and my Southernness and all those things, but I also understood that that network is located in Atlanta, Georgia, and that, uh, they were big with the Atlanta Braves, Andy Griffith and John Wayne movies. I didn't see a whole lot of difference in, in my demeanor, my, how I sounded, my philosophies than, uh, than their their basic uh, shows that they were pushing and they were driving the network and wrestling was one of the drivers. So I, I didn't understand that coming off the air, but nonetheless, after Watts, uh, left not long after that, Eric got the gig. And so I could see the handwriting on the wall. I got passed over. And at that point is where I accelerated my desire to leave. Cause I didn't want to, I just didn't want to, I didn't want the job that they wanted me to do. And that sounds bad, but my contract stated clearly, here is your role for you. You're always, you're going to do this job and you're going to get paid this money. That's pretty simple for me, but uh, it just didn't, they violated their own deal. So I had a chance to say, I'll take two and a half years off. Now, what am I going to do to my career? You know how that works. Connor, you're smart businessman, smart, smartest guys I've ever known. You take yourself out of the game for two years, two and a half years. You're dead. You are. Yeah. So that's kind of how I, I looked at it. And and, uh, it was time to go to the next step. And look, when Vince McMahon told me in February, uh, late, 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 late February, early March in that neighborhood that I'm going to bring you in and you're going to debut at WrestleMania. Well, I, my thought at that time was I'm going to do like an interview or, you know, some kind of Mickey mouse assignment. No. You're going to do play by play. You're going to, you're going to be the guy at the booth of Bobby and, and, and macho man, Bobby Heenan. Uh, you don't think I was excited about that. I'm getting taken off my show that I help. I help try to help build in a company. I love being at, I love living in Atlanta, still love going to Atlanta. And all of a sudden, you know, now I'm got a chance to, to be play by play at the super bowl of pro wrestling. So I was very motivated to get the hell out of there at that point in time. And WCW, to their credit, was motivated to get, get rid of my ass as well because it wasn't about getting rid of JR as much as it was getting rid of JR's salary. And because uh, I made less money going to Vince uh, than I was making at, the, at, at that contract I walked off of and got a release from. So Vince did not pay me as much as WCW to start with. But I, he and I had a couple of brainstorming sessions. Uh, we had a long meeting in Augusta, Georgia. And he gave me 50 grand signing bonus, which I didn't ask for or expect. 
so it, it, it worked out good for me. You know, it, it's, that's how it works. And I'm, I'm not bitter about any of this. I'm not, I'm, I'm not bitter at Eric. I'm not bitter at Bill Shaw. Shaw's a two timer. He's a, he's got two tongues, man. And, uh, so I, I, but Eric, I have no issues. I, I got plenty of time for Eric. I like Eric. Maybe we'll work together again someday doing something. You never know. But I, I, I think, uh, I got, I got a, I got a break there, Conrad, quite frankly, you know, the hall of fame and you know, executive VP and stock options and all these things, my God, how could I have had it better? So I'm lucky and happy that it worked out the way it did. And I don't carry any negative baggage with me going forward regarding that moment. If you haven't already check out the, uh, the episode in the archives of our very first show together, Jim and myself, it's all about him leaving WCW. That's a perfect companion piece for this. This will probably be as close as we're going to get to him jumping ship in that show. But this is your last clash of the champions. You know, you've yep. done a lot of clash of the champions. You were there seemingly from the beginning. Uh, I was it, number one. This is, this is not the most memorable. Where would you rank this amongst your clash shows? It wasn't, it wasn't the best class of champions show that I, I thought I was involved in Conrad, that the first class of champions where Tony Schiavone and I worked together. Uh, and Flair and Sting in their 45-minute match, uh, et cetera, et cetera, was my favorite because it was my first event in the uh, in Greensboro at the Coliseum of any kind, and that was always kind of cool for me because it was a Starcade home and it just felt big. ACC basketball and Michael Jordan and you know Duke and North Carolina, all those things. So uh, I'd say the first clash was my favorite, but this was a sleeper in a sense that it may not crack the top ten. It might, but it's going to be hovering around, uh, relevancy in the, in, in, within the low top 10, if we, if we get there. So I, I thought it overachieved quite frankly, even though the main event and the finish of the main event and the, and the watering it down and the, the, the being convoluted, uh, was the shits. Uh, there were things on there that we go back and talk about like we did today, Brad Armstrong and Chris Benoit. Yeah. Look, Hey, look, look. If you just take yourself out of the, out of Ben Wallace last a few hours of his life and just go back in time, many, many years before that and watch this wrestling match. It also says another thing. It shows us all how great Brad Armstrong was. Yep. Uh, uh, and he was very underrated. He's one of those kind of guys that if you captured his personality on camera, uh, you would see that he's, a, you know, uh, he, he's a, amazingly talented guy. It just didn't translate when the red light was on, except with him being in the ring him in the ring wrestling. That's why he was under a mask as a, what, arachna man or some of that shit. Uh, because people thought, well, we put a, put a hood on him and he'll be, uh, you know, he won't, we won't worry about his facials or his, you know, personality, whatever. But Brad Armstrong was one of the, one of the greats, man. And that match right there is a great proof of it. So, uh, and I, and I, again, I like the fact that Ventura and I, had a decent show, solid show, even though I wore the world's ugliest tie and, uh, but I didn't look as outrageous as Ventura did. It was all, all good. So I, I, I would say it's a, it's in the top 10, lower top 10 Conrad, because it did overachieve what I perceived it would. I loved Austin and Pillman in any car incarnation. And I love Shane Douglas and Ricky steamboat. That was a great a tag team match made in heaven. So there's a lot of good things I liked about it, but I'd say lower top 10, uh, at worst. If you haven't already be ready to watch Royal rumble 2000, that's what we're covering next week. I'm super excited about this. 
It went down on January 23rd, 2000. So it'll be the exact 20 year anniversary next Thursday when we revisit it. The card is really phenomenal. To start things off, we have Kurt Angle out here essentially opening and or issuing an open challenge. He has got, he's going to have an opponent, but he doesn't know who it is. It's a debuting Taz, and the crowd goes bananas. Of course, there's a lot yep. of ECW faithful here. They're ready for this big debut by Taz. And then an unbelievable tag team tables match with the Hardy boys and the Dudley boys. And this is before everything went super crazy with the tables, ladders, and chairs. And, uh, it sort of became second nature. So to see Jeff Hardy jump off the entrance and put the Dudleys through a table was really remarkable. They yeah. have triple threat for the intercontinental title with Chris Jericho, China and hardcore Holly. And then the acolytes are in there with the new age outlaws. And then perhaps my favorite triple H match ever. It's a street fight for the WWF title between triple H and cactus Jack. And man, if you haven't watched this match in a long time, go out of your way to see it really remarkable. And then of course the Royal rumble where the rock would win last eliminating big show. Uh, he's going to head towards a championship match at WrestleMania 2000 top to bottom. One of the sleeper Royal rumbles, certainly historically important with the Taz debut and the triple H cactus Jack match was great. And everything on the undercard was just clicking, especially the tables match. I can't wait to cover this show. I hope everyone listening goes and watches it this week because we're going to have a great time talking about this one next week. Aren't we Jim? Absolutely. Big league stuff, folks. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, I worked very diligently to hire Taz. Uh, again, he had to overcome the obstacle internally. Well, now how tall is he? That deal. And, uh, but all those doubts were dispersed upon his entrance. Taz's entrance in the garden at the Royal rumble was as organic, real, massive, emotional investment as you may ever see. There are a few other guys that came back to the garden. Triple H got a great ovation when he came back to the garden after injury. Yep. Uh, Austin, Austin, same deal. Austin coming back first time back at the garden. Cause that was his building, but man, oh man, if nothing else, I, I'm with Conrad, watch all of it. And, but if you don't watch anything, but the entrance of Taz, you'll be entertained. It's a, it's a really cool thing. So, Hey Conrad, what we got, that's going to be a great shot. I'm going to go watch that now. I may watch that before I hit the road again. Uh, I want to thank everybody for checking out our website, uh, jrsbbq.com. Uh, we got a couple of specials right now. Get a free bottle of hot barbecue sauce. Just check it out. It's your order will be shipped basically the same day you get it or you, you, it, we receive it. Uh, and, uh, but we've done almost a thousand orders since, uh, uh, Christmas, the week before Christmas, it's amazing. And people are loving the product. You know, it's gluten-free. The bottles are unbreakable, the plastic bottles. So I'm having a blast of rebuilding this. I know Jan and my mom would be happy because that was their, their love child that, that saw stuff. And so if you get a chance and you need a gift idea or look, I don't, I don't believe this thing should be a gift idea at all exclusively because I, I, that's my, I use my Chipotle ketchup instead of any other brand. And the mustard is amazing. It's got one gram of sugar, jalapeno, honey mustard. It's very, very good. So thank you guys for checking it out. I know we hawk a lot of things. We start to sell a lot of things, but, uh, our site's going to take a lot of, be doing a lot of changes. We believe that we're going to be able to sell our book on online. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, for every order we get at the uh, website for our, our new book under the black hat is, uh, 
uh, I'm going to personalize them. So to get a personalized book mailed to you, uh, you're going to be able to do that at, at uh, jrsbbq.com. And we appreciate your business. Absolutely. And we also look forward to seeing you guys live and in person. We're going to get our little miniature tour kicked off on February 5th here in Huntsville, right after AEW Dynamite on TNT. It'll be Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross, and myself here at Stand Up Live. Go pick up your tickets now at supershowlive.com. And then Jim and I are going to jump on the big bird and go across the pond. We're coming to see you. Uh, and, and inside the ropes is your hookup. If you're in uh, London or Glasgow, there's lots of different shows there lined up. Just look for inside the ropes and uh, you can't miss grill and JR live. We're going to be there on the 7th, 8th and 9th of February. So make plans to see us. I don't know when we'll get over there again. So this should be a, a really unique and special opportunity. Nothing booked again in 2000 and 2020. So, uh, London, Manchester Glasgow. and Glasgow. You got it. Uh, three shots going to be good. And tickets are going well for it. Conrad and I don't rehearse. We don't have notes. We don't, we don't have a prompter. Uh, we play off our instincts and telling funny stories and entertaining stories and you, your questions and no question is off limits. Uh, we love the meet and greets, you know, look, we're just two big old fat wrestling fans, folks. Come on and to be around other wrestling fans. Best thing in the world. You're around your own people. And I know I never feel more comfortable in any environment than I do when we're doing these shows. And we're around other wrestling fans. So come out and enjoy it. And we, we will damn sure guarantee that you'll be entertained. Don't miss it. Inside the ropes. We're coming to see you. London, Manchester, Glasgow, inside the ropes. It's February 7th, 8th and 9th. Make plans to join us there. Or if you're here in the South, you got to get to Huntsville on February 5th. It's going to be the first dynamite after the Super Bowl. It's going to be a show and a half. You don't want to miss it. Uh, but before you do all that, man, you got to get your Valentine's day sorted. And you can do that with a deeply and lavishly dipped pure 24 karat gold, American long stem beauty rose. I'll get it right. Eventually a real long stem American beauty rose. I can't believe you can get a rose that's dipped in gold for just 59 bucks. That includes free shipping. What are you doing? This is the best Valentine's day gift you can possibly give It's super affordable and it doesn't come any easier. It gives you the personalized love note, a signature gift box. It's all shipped for just 59 bucks and I hate Steven singer.com. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Steven singer jewelers. This is a gift she will cherish forever. And I hate Steven singer.com. And next week we hope you cherish Royal rumble 2000 right here on grill and Jr. with the voice of wrestling, Jim Rohn. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.